how good it's, it's been already this morning to be reminded of the gospel. In the Lord's Supper, we remember and we proclaim his goodness, and certainly there is much goodness to remember and proclaim, and so we're grateful to be together as God's people and to have God's word before us. And this morning, we're going to spend our time in 2 Peter. And so you can, you can start at the back of your Bible and just flip in a few pages. There's Revelation and uh, the three Johns and then 2 Peter. And as the title of this letter indicates, this is the second letter we have from the Apostle Peter. And he's writing this letter to, to warn the believers of the false teachers who, who will infiltrate the church and spread their destructive and heretical teaching. Peter is concerned that because of these false teachers and those who follow them, the way of truth is going to be maligned. He's concerned for the gospel. He's concerned that the message of the gospel is going to be distorted by the immoral conduct of these false teachers and their followers. And so in this letter, he writes to warn the believers And he also charges the believers to make certain of their calling and election. Make certain of your calling as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're to do that by living upright and holy lives as they await the promised return of the Lord Jesus. Peter also calls the believers to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. But before giving these commands... The opening verses of the letter, Peter Peter reminds his readers of the foundation upon which growth in grace and knowledge of Christ and pursuing a godly life are established, namely this foundation of grace. He begins here, for to begin anywhere else would jeopardize the message of the gospel, namely that we've been saved by grace and we live by grace. And so in the face of the the scoffers who deny the return of Christ, and in the face of heretical teaching, which is going to infiltrate the church, Peter reminds these readers that God has graciously given them what is needed for life and godliness. And this message that believers have been given what is needed for life and godliness is a message of hope for us this morning. No matter the struggle... No matter the opposition, we can be encouraged and comforted knowing that God has graciously given us what is needed for life and for godliness. We're going to read, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, 2 Peter, I'm going to read uh, verse 1 through verse 4. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Our Father, we are humbled before you this morning, and we praise your great name for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. We want to know you, so will you come and be our teacher this morning? Open our minds, open our hearts to receive your truth. Make us more like Christ, your son. We pray in his name. Amen. These are difficult days, no doubt. Uh, the wind is a bit difficult, too, here. So we're, we're going to work with the wind. Um, these, are, these are difficult days. And as we look back over the past few months and all the things that have transpired, the things that, that continue to happen, as we look and, and, and ask ourselves what the Lord is doing, what the Lord is teaching us, there, there are many things that we can say. But in all of this, we acknowledge that we are needy people. We are people in need of God's grace. And these verses that, that teach us divine provision, that give us divine provision for, for godly living, are especially comforting for us. In these verses, we see this. God, in his goodness, has, has given us what we need for life and for godliness. And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 together. And uh, to begin here in verse 3, we're, we're going to note this. First of all, by grace, we've been given what we need for life and godliness. This is what we see. By grace, we've been given what we need for life and godliness. There's, there's a provision here. And so we're going to ask a few questions about this provision. Beginning with this, what, what is the source of this provision? And what we see here in the text is that the, the, the source of the provision is his divine power. God's divine power is what we need, or God's divine power is the source, is the source for what we need for life and for godliness. When we think about power, we think about God's power, maybe some words like this come to mind, infinite mighty, great. God is known by his power. He, uh, we, we read in Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so as we remember back to God's people in Egypt and the plagues that, that were brought, and then the way that God opened the Red Sea, these mighty acts of God cause us to proclaim the greatness of his power. His name is exalted through his power. God's power is displayed when he speaks a word and creation jumps into existence. God's power is displayed when he speaks a word and the dead are made alive. We remember the story of Lazarus in the book of John. Lazarus, this man who had been in the tomb for four days, and Jesus comes and speaks the words, Lazarus, come out. And this man who was dead comes walking out of the tomb. This is a picture of what happens when a person is saved. The one who was dead in sin is raised to life by the power of God. This is a glorious reality. God in his great power is able 
to raise the dead and give life. So his divine power, here, here then is the source of the provision. We like to be in awe of power. Just a few days ago, I, I was reminded, I think our family was reminded of, of the power of a bolt of lightning. One of those, these pop-up storms was, was moving through town, and it was one of these cases where the flash and the bang happened at the same time, right? And your heart jumps up and into your throat, and the power went off for a minute, and I go to the window and say, oh, what got hit, right? And after the storm had moved through, we discovered that just at the end of the block, that the lightning had hit the top of one of these tall trees. And it was amazing to see just how far this one bolt of lightning threw the wood. We're in awe of power. We recently saw some, some footage of, of Mount St. Helens when it was erupting. And we see this power. We're in awe of this power. Right? As we think about a bolt of lightning or Mount St. Helens, there's great power there, but it pales in comparison to the power of God. The power of God, which is the source of this provision for life and godliness. Lest we doubt that there is provision sufficient for what is needed, we remember that the provision has as its source his divine power. So that's the source, but let's ask more. What, what about the scope? What about the scope of this provision? What it says is his divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. In short, we can say that God has given us everything we need to spend eternity with him. He's given us everything that we need to live a godly life. There's no lack in this provision. The apostle knows that his time is short. He knows that the end of his days are coming soon. And so he wants to remind the believers he wants to remind them of the truth. He wants, to, he wants to remind them what they already know, what, namely what a godly life looks like. And, and it begins with the truth that by God's grace, they and we have been given what we need for life and for godliness. It's fitting here, I think, to, to understand life to be referring not, not just to the life we're living here, this new life, but, but to eternal life. It's the same Apostle Peter who said in John's gospel to the Lord Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so in, in the letter of 2 Peter, we see that what we've been given is what is needed for, for life, for eternal life, this, this salvation. By God's grace, we have this eternal life. And we're currently, if you're in Christ Jesus, we're, we're currently experiencing life now, in the present. And at the same time, we're awaiting its fulfillment on the final day when Christ will return. Incidentally, the return of Christ was something that these false teachers were denying. Peter calls them scoffers. Nevertheless, when we... When the Savior returns and we will be with him, we will see him, we'll experience the fullness of the life that we've been given in Christ. But until that time, we're in this state of already and not yet, a time where we still battle against the flesh. Life and godliness, while we await the day when the Lord Jesus will return, 
our lives are to be marked by godliness. In fact, we're to pursue godliness, knowing that Jesus is coming again. This is the way Peter speaks in this letter. If you flip over a page or two in chapter 3 and verse 11, Peter says, Since all these things are, to, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Or verse 14 of chapter 3, Therefore, beloved, since you are awaiting these things, that is, the new heavens and the new earth, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And so while we, while we read this command to live godly lives, we, we rejoice knowing that we've received what we need in order to live that godly life. It's good for us to, to take a moment here at this place, and consider that we are the recipients of God's immeasurable grace. Do you remember how this letter started? Verse 1, Peter says, To those who have obtained a faith with equal standing, as equal, of equal standing with ours. This word obtained means to receive by lot or to receive by appointment. This faith is appointed for you. This faith is appointed for you and you and you. God's great grace is lavished upon sinners. We've obtained a faith that secures our souls for eternity. There is no working involved. Lest a person think that his goodness merits God's favor, Grace is multiplied to us. If we're saved due to something intrinsically good in us, grace ceases to be grace. Coming back now to godliness, we've received what we need for life and for godliness. What is godliness? As I was reading, here, here's, here's how one commentator uh, defined godliness. I think this is helpful. He says, godliness is a Godward orientation of life. A Godward orientation of life expressed in thoughts, feelings, attitudes, speech, and action. I think this is helpful. The way we think, our thinking is Godward oriented. The way we speak, the way we act. Godliness refers to our, it speaks of our devotion for him. So putting these two words together, we see life and godliness. We recognize that God has given us all we need for salvation from beginning to end. It's not just initial saving faith. It's what we need to, to live out that faith to the end that God is glorified. In his grace, God has given provision for what is needed. We see God's, God's provision for, for uh, what is needed in his creation. In, in all of the difficulty over the past few weeks and months, what, one, of the, one of the blessings of the Lord, one of his kindnesses to us is uh, maybe a morning like this, but have you noticed how beautiful the spring has been? The flowers have been incredible this year, so vibrant. 
we see God's goodness to us. And one of the things I'm especially grateful for during these, these days is the ability to be able to be out a bit. Our, our family has done a lot of walking. And sometimes we'll walk around the, the lake in Eureka. And if you're familiar with the lake there, you'll know what I mean when I say there's no shortage of geese there. Uh, there are geese everywhere. And, uh, but in the springtime, one of the, one of the really fun things to watch, the neat things to see is uh, these, these eggs hatch, right? And these little goslings are come into the world. And we were walking by and noticing this little family right, swimming along in the water, following after mama. And if you, if you were able to see under the water, what would you see there? You would, you would see these little webbed feet right, moving along moving them right through the water. And if you began to study a little bit about these animals, you would see that they've been created in just the right way, so they're, they're, they're buoyant, right? And they, they've been given wings to help them stay afloat. The, the point is, God in his goodness has given his creatures what is needed for living and for flourishing. What Peter is teaching us here is that God has given each of his children precisely what is needed for life and for godliness, for living and for flourishing. What does this mean for us then? One of the things it means is that we don't have to look elsewhere to some sort of uh, secret or, or mystical insight into how to get close to God or how to live this Christian life. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit to guide us. Here is instruction for us. Here is the way to flourish as his children. So we've noted the source of God's provision. It's his divine power. It comes from him. And the scope, is it, 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 it applies to all things, to all that we need for life and godliness. And finally, we're going to ask the question, well, what's the means by which this provision comes to us? If his divine power is the source and it's, it's good for all of life and godliness, well, how does this come to us? And, and the good news here, what we see in the text is that it comes to us through the knowledge of him. It comes to us through the knowledge of Christ. This is more than mere head knowledge. It's more than knowing about Jesus. The knowledge Peter is speaking of here has to, speak with, has to do with knowing him in a saving way. It's this kind of knowledge through which grace and peace are multiplied to the believer in verse 2. And so what we see is that we are given what's needed for life and godliness through knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. Let's consider this call for just a moment. This, this call that Peter speaks of here is the calling by God to sinners, which always results in repentance and faith. Sometimes the phrase effectual call is used to describe this kind of calling Peter describes it or, or speaks of it in this way in, in his first letter. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, speaking to those, those believers, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is an effectual call, out of darkness into light. Or in 1 Peter 
5.10, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his own to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We could look elsewhere. The Apostle Paul speaks a lot about this call, uh, the calling of God's own. The point here is that the call Peter speaks of refers to a saving call. It's the call unto salvation. And what we see here in verse 3 is that the way Christ calls us to himself is by his own glory and excellence. In his mercy, he removes the blinders from our eyes. These blinders that keep us from seeing Christ in his glory and his beauty. And by God's grace, the dead sinner is able to behold Christ in his beauty and see that he is most to be desired. And the sinner places his faith in Christ. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God's glory, we see his glory connected with his name. This is who he is. Think of some of the attributes of God. He's unchangeable. He's all-knowing. He's the creator. He's all-powerful. His excellence has to do with his moral virtues and his perfection, which is worthy of praise. We think of Isaiah 42, 8, puts these two words together. There we read, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Christ calls us by his own glory and excellence. It's in keeping with who he is that he calls us to himself. This is of God's character to do this, namely to give life, to reveal himself to sinners as God. And as our eyes are open to see Christ for the treasure that he is, we see his perfect life. And he becomes attractive to us. We see him as the one who has bore our sin and our shame. Christ is the one who knows everything about us. He knows our darkest sins. He knows how often we turn from him. He knows how often we pursue our own glory. He knows how often we don't believe him. And we trade his promises of faithfulness and provision for a life of anxiety and, and the illusion of control. He knows all of this and says, I love you anyway. I love you anyway. I came to you when you were in your most pitiable condition. I came to you when you were running from me. Read Romans chapter 5. It's possible to know about Christ. It's possible to know the Bible, to be a member of a church, and still not know Christ. So we ask this morning, do, do you know him? Do you know him? Does he know you? And the good news of the gospel says that those who are apart from him can be known by him by repentance and faith. It's turning from sin and putting our trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, and we can be assured of eternal life.
And for those who do know Christ, the glorious news is that in him, we've been given what is needed for life and for godliness. We're able to be victorious over sin. Of course, we still struggle. We're going to struggle with our flesh until the day that Christ returns. But as his children, when we're faced with temptation, our knowledge of Christ compels us to consider him that he's taken the punishment that we deserve and that he's the one that sought us out when we were running from him. He's the good shepherd who seeks his own, the one who has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And we look at Christ in his glory and his excellence and we choose him. We choose him over all the enticements that the world would offer. I choose Christ, the one who will reward me with eternal reward. I value Christ more than anyone or anything. That's how we wage war against sin. And this is what Christ gives us. It comes, he gives us what we need for life and for godliness through the knowledge of him. The knowledge of him who calls us how? By his own glory and his beauty. So it's true that by grace, we've been given what we need for life and godliness. And second, it's also true that by grace, we've become partakers of the divine nature. The grace of God is, is evident, it's prominent in these opening verses. And, and the theme of God's grace continues now into verse 4 where it says, by which, that is, by Christ's own glory and excellence, he not only calls us, but he grants to us his precious and very great promises. I picture it as this, this massive storehouse, right? this massive storehouse of glory and excellence. And out of this great storehouse flows to us his precious and very great promises. Peter doesn't expound on the promises, but it seems appropriate to think that these promises include what flows to us through the gospel, right? the promises of the gospel, eternal life, union with Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are end time promises as well, right? Peter speaks of these in chapter three. Christ is going to come again and, he, and he's going to bring with him and, and create new heavens and new earth. There's a promise that we will one day be complete in him. No more struggle in sin. John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so through the promises of God, we become partakers of the divine nature. As we behold his glory and his excellence, we receive these promises. So what does it mean to be a partaker this is interesting language, right? To be a partaker of the divine nature. Some translations say that you may share or participate in the divine nature. But what does this mean? Being a partaker of the divine nature means that, that we share God's character. We reflect his, his, his attributes, his moral attributes, they're reflected in us as we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We live in a way that's consistent with God's character, though imperfectly. The idea, it, 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 uh, to, be a, to be made a, a partaker of the divine nature means that we become like God. I didn't say we become God, but we become, we become like him. 
We become like him in our character. We've, we've escaped the corruption of the world, and for the rest of our lives, we're becoming more and more like him. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we're being transformed into, the, into Christ's image from one degree of glory to another. We've been changed, and we're being changed. We've been saved, and we're, we're being saved and this will happen, this will continue until the day that we're glorified. It's this idea of, of transformation, restoration. And this fits, this fits right within the big picture, the big story that we see in Scripture. God is making all things new. He's taking what's broken, he's taking what's broken and making it new. Creation to new creation. I can remember when I was, when I was a boy uh, watching a, a kind old friend restore old tractors. And he would start with something that was uh, not much to look at. Maybe it had tires, maybe it didn't. Maybe it had some paint on it, most likely no. Uh, wouldn't run. And over the, over the course of days and weeks and months, this process of restoration continued until once what was suitable only for a junkyard was now had been transformed into this fully functioning, fully restored tractor. Is this not fitting for us to, to draw an analogy between this and what God is doing in our lives? Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature. God is doing a work in us that will be completed on the final day. And so we, with Peter, look forward to that day to new heavens and new earth, the place in which righteousness dwells. By grace, we are made partakers of the divine nature. Our hearts are moved with praise for our great God this morning, for his great grace to us. And in these couple of verses, Peter has laid the foundation. He's laid the foundation for the exhortations that follow. He's reminded us that Christ has given us what is needed for life and for godliness, and this all by his grace. And so for the number of days that he gives us here, we can go forward with a, a humble confidence, knowing that no matter the difficulty, no matter the opposition, we've been thoroughly equipped to live in such a way that our God is glorified. And by his grace, we will do this. Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you because through knowledge of your son, Jesus, we have what we need for life and for godliness. And so our prayer as we go is that we would bring glory to your name by living in a way that pleases you. And that we would have great confidence and great hope knowing that we have an eternal salvation. We have a hope laid up for us. We praise you for your goodness this morning. In Christ's name, amen.